Welcome to a special edition of the Jim and Justin Breakdown. This is a very special episode because it's the day of the American League wildcard game. We have the National League wildcard game tomorrow, and I have Jim Duquette with me. Jim, how excited are you for these games? You know what? I love, always love you know this time of the year, the one-game plan. I'm a, I'm a big fan of. Uh, there's nothing better, I don't uh, believe, than, than uh, the excitement of a one-game plan. I remember Joe uh, Torrey uh, last year who, who sat down with both managers before the game, uh, before the Orioles and Blue Jays, and said to both managers, hey, welcome to game seven of the postseason. One team's going to move on, the other one's going to go home. And, and that's basically how you have to treat these things. And John Gibbons, who was the manager of the Blue Jays, basically reiterated exactly what the, what they felt, what he felt in, in um, you know, in that one game plan. Obviously, um, you know, he was able to go you know, deeper into the into the postseason than the Orioles were uh, based on, you know, how how his team went. But uh, he really uh, handled it like a game seven. Right. Where where, uh, you know, the starter is a little bit more traditional with the starter, tried to go as deep as he could. But he, he went matchups very early on and ended up working out for for him and the Blue Jays. Yeah, I think that the huge difference in a game seven versus this game is that you have pretty much your whole team available. And I think that gives the manager almost too much ability to meddle with it too much and, and mess it up. And I think Gibbons was the beneficiary. of He managed his team well, and, and the other team messed up. I mean, bringing in Ubaldo Jimenez in the 11th inning, uh, you couldn't find a single sabermetric that would suggest that was the right decision. So uh, Gibbons, yeah, Gibbons outmanaged that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, listen, sorry to interrupt, but what, what I was going to say was you, you're right on. I, I think that was a tremendous, you know, not only was there, you know, the Sabre metrics didn't work, there were there were two better choices than Abado and Menez for the Baltimore Orioles. There was Zach Britton, who never got in, had the best season of of his uh, of his career, one of the best ever, and Dylan Bundy, who was also available to him in the bullpen, who had right. pitched great uh, all, as well. Both of those guys were better options than what ended up with the menace. Have you ever talked to Buck Showalter about that? Buck, I had a chance to uh, listen to Buck's response both at right after that game, which we all heard, but then several weeks after. I didn't t- speak to him personally, but you know, his it, it took him a while for him to actually admit that that was the best move. You know, especially when you kind of go back and, and look at it and, and with the benefit of uh, of hindsight. But you know, going into it, he, he thought it was the right move. He thought that Jimenez was going to be the guy that would give him some length, um, and you know, instead of kind of going that that matchup uh, at that point, I think Gibbons had already used his closer, and so you know, in, in, in Orioles were still in a really really good spot there. I think what ended up getting him caught, which happens to a lot of managers, is you know, you're on the road, and you know, in a tie game. Do you bring in your closer and then think about him going two innings? Or he closes, or let's say he shuts down the, the Blue Jays in the bottom half of the inning, and then you take the lead the next half inning. Uh, you know, do you come out with somebody else who doesn't have the ability to close to finish the game? I think that's where a lot of these managers get caught up and seem like Buck did too, right. instead of worrying about that. You know, at the end of the thing, just win win that inning and then move on to the next inning and try to look at it that way. Yeah, there's no divisiveness in the sabermetrics community on what the right thing to do is there. You, you had to bring in Zach Britton. Uh, can't, can't end the game without having pitched him, but there's been a lot of talk about that. Let's start talking about this year's playoff games. This year's wild card all comes down to this, Game 7, like you said. And let's bring in Michael Kadire now, 
who is working with the Twins, played for the Twins most of his career, and played a few seasons with the Rockies, uh, both of the wildcard teams, so I'm interested to get his perspective. And now on the line, we have Michael Kodire, who played 15 major league seasons, and all but one of them was for the two teams on the road in the wildcard games upcoming. So who better to have on to talk some baseball? How are you, Michael? I'm doing great, guys. Yourself? Doing great. And I have Jim Duquette on the line, former Mets general manager. Jim, I know before we get into the wild cards, you wanted to lead off with a question about the Mets. Well, yeah, Michael, you're, obviously you were, you were a huge part of that uh, team getting to the postseason and you know Terry in, into the World Series. And then Terry Collins, of course, announced that he was stepping down yesterday. What, what did you, uh, when you were around him as the manager, what stood out the most about him and the job that he did there? Well, for me, I have the utmost respect for Terry. I mean, he um, really took care of his veterans uh, while also teaching the young players. Um, I think for me, the communication, you know, when you when you've played a while in the league, the only thing you can ask for from your manager is, is to have good communication, to have good open dialogues. And it was always there. He, he would always let me know the night before if I was playing, if I wasn't playing. And then as, as, my role started to shift. He was always keeping me uh, up with the situation, what his thought processes were and things like that, even though he didn't have to, he was always made sure I understood the decisions that he was, uh, he was making. So I thought he did a tremendous job in leading us, um, you know, to get to the world series is no small feat and he should be proud of the job that he did with the Mets. Michael, let's move into some playoff baseball. And Have you thought about the fact that the two teams that you spent the most time with are the teams that are on the road in these wild card games, and are you rooting for both of them? No, I'm definitely rooting for both of them. And, yeah, I mean, obviously I've, I've still got friends, uh, not only players, but coaching staff and um, trainers, front office that, that I'm in contact with, obviously still employed by the Twins, so definitely in, in – uh, you know, in close contact with them, but uh, it was also with the Rockies. I, I wish them both of them luck. Um, you know, it's been a long time for both organizations to get into the postseason, and you know, you got this one game playoff game where anything can happen. You know, you go out there and you you, you stick it to them early in the first couple innings, uh, especially both teams going on the road, try and take the fans out of it. And uh, I think if you if you can do that, if you can successfully do that, you've got a, a good chance of winning the game. For sure. How about this amazing Twins bounce back season where they were nine games worse than any other team in the MLB last year? That is incredible. Mm -hmm. And now they're in the playoffs. What what do you credit to this situation? I mean, I think Byron Buxton's improvement with his glove, all the hitters seem to have gotten a little better. But what stands out to you as the big factor? I think it's a combination of, of a few different things. One, you know, I think as a front office really tried to bring in quality human beings in the, in the off season, maybe guys that really aren't on the radar to, to a lot of people looking in guys like Matt, Chris Jimenez that have really solidified that clubhouse have really brought, brought leadership, taught these young guys how to prepare day in and day out. But also the talent was there. I mean, yes, we talk a lot about last year and how 103 games lo losing and, but then you look at the year before that, they were just one game away from making the same playoff, the same second wild card. So I think last year with the young team, 
starting off 0-9, they just never were able to rebound. They were never able to get back on the winning in the winning ways and get on a winning a sustained winning streak to be able to overcome starting off 0-9. When you throw a lot of veterans in there and you start off 0-9, it's chance there's a chance you can overcome at least salvage a little bit of the season. But when you start off 0-9 with a young group of guys that really aren't equipped yet to handle that, then you have 103 losses. And I, so I think last year was more an, an anomaly than uh, than the norm. And I think this year they're playing a little bit more to what they're capable of, yeah. along with the leadership that those guys have been able to bring in. Michael, I wanted to ask you about this. The front office made you know a couple of trades, and I've talked to Thad Levine and Derek Falvey about this, uh, some uh, trades that were made you know, sending players off the team rather than adding it. And I'm curious from the player's perspective of, you know, it seemed to galvanize the the team and they seemed to play well, despite the front office's moves. What was your take on that? Well, I think everybody understands the goal and the goal is the ultimate goal is sustained winning, um, being able to win year in and year out. And the moves that were made, I think, is going to allow the organization and allow us to be able to do that. You know, one thing that's tricky about this second wild card and about this wild card round is that, it, you know, you have to be able to play both sides of the fence where you don't want to necessarily sell the farm or, or pass up an opportunity for sustained success when it's very capable of going out and losing that one game playoff and and you know, not being able to advance. So, you know, it's a, it's a fine line that you have to walk as a front office. And luckily for us, fortunately for us, I should say the players really rallied around each other and were able to do that. And I think the only way you can make those deals, if you know that people in the clubhouse can step up into the positions that you've traded away. Matt Belisle has done an unbelievable job uh, at the closing position, Busevich has been able to come in and, and step into the eighth inning role and be a great pitcher for us at the back end of that bullpen. So we're able to overcome trading away a guy like Kinsler and still be able to have success. Yeah, that was really amazing to see him go because I was reading so many things going into it saying the Twins need bullpen help. The Twins need to go out and trade for bullpen. And then they trade Brandon Kinsler and everyone says, okay, well, clearly management doesn't think this team can win. And then here they are in the playoffs, and, and the bullpen hasn't really been an issue. So I think they have the sluggers to potentially get through the Yankees. And any team in the playoffs can give it a run. So I'm excited. But let's move over to the Rockies. And I don't know how much you've really examined that series as you're preparing for the Twins series. But who do you think will win the Rockies-Diamondbacks? And then who do you think will win against the Dodgers? Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty unique situation when you got three teams that are going to play, no matter who wins this game on Wednesday night. They, they've all played each other 19 times or 18 times, however right. many times it is. So they're, they're all familiar with each other. So there's nobody's going to be hiding anything. Nobody's going to be unfamiliar with the pitching. The game plans have all been put in place. Um, these guys know them. So it, it's going to be a fun series to watch both the, the one game playoff on Wednesday and then whoever is able to advance. I think the Rockies obviously has, has as good a chance as anybody. Um, you know, they've got a, a deep lineup, a really good lineup with perennial MVP candidates, um, you know, two of them, Arenado and, and Charlie Blackman. And then their pitching staff this year, I think, finally said, you know what, it doesn't matter what ballpark we're going to pitch in, we're going to go out there and compete. And that ha- you haven't seen that from a Colorado Rockies team in a long time. Right. Yeah, I mean, this team has some really unique characteristics. 
and I wonder how it'll be managed uh, in this one-game playoff. For example, John Gray, their starter, his OPS the first time through the lineup, the OPS he allows is 100 points lower than the worst qualified hitter in baseball this season. He's, he allows a 502 OPS. And then the second time through the order, it goes all the way up to 922, which is about Daniel Murphy. If you're the manager of the Rockies, yep. are you pulling Gray after nine hitters? <laughs> well, I don't think you can go out there with the with that blueprint in mind. <laughs> but um, you know, I definitely think that that is something that will play into it. I don't don't kid yourself thinking that the the Rockies staff, the Rockies front office, don't know those numbers as well. They know that clearly going into it. So I think you will see some strategy like that. Whether he's got a you know goes to one, two, three for the first three innings and all of a sudden he's out of the line, out of the game. I don't think that will happen. But I think after you get through that, that first first time through the order, there's going to be a pretty short leash. How, how about on um, – you talked about knowing these teams. You know, each of the teams know each other, right? They played 19 times. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a lot of games. Is there a, uh, an advantage to one side over the other? Let's say, does it, Is there a better advantage for, like, say, a hitter? Because you've seen uh, – you know, let's say from the Rockies side, you've seen Granky before or is there more an advantage for the pitcher on the hitter is there or is there an advantage right. either way well yeah i would i would definitely say that you know i wouldn't say that there's an advantage to the hitter but it definitely takes some of the advantage away from the pitcher there's no question about that you know the first time you face a guy the first probably three or four times you face a guy it is 100 percent advantage pitcher You've never seen what the, the ball comes out as action. You don't know what the spin looks like, what his breaking balls look like, what his changeup looks like. So as you face guys eight, nine times, especially eight, nine times in the course of one season, that advantage kind of, I don't want to say it shifts, but it definitely takes away the advantage from the pitcher's side. And you get back to now game planning and, and seeing the ball and hitting the ball rather than having to worry about what his pitches do. Usually you see really low scoring games in the playoffs, particularly in the wild card games. Do you think that could be a game where it's high scoring given that it's in a hitter's park and, and they've seen these pitchers many times? Well, I mean it, it definitely could be. It definitely has a recipe. You got two lineups that are two of the best lineups in all of baseball. Um you're right, and you're gonna be in a hitter's park. Um but I mean you also got Zach Grinke on the mound and and John Gray who we talked about first time through the order. So, you know, I think you could see it going either way. I think you could justify your prediction either way. Uh I see it more like a 5 to 3, maybe a 6 to 4 game somewhere around there. Yeah, I think it's going to be a tight one too. Hey, one more I wanted to ask you just when it um when it comes to the overall, you know, uh getting in via the wild card and only having one mm-hmm. game, like winner take all. <laughs> What's your overall yeah. view of that? Well, I played in two game 163s, and I can tell you as a player, I'm not a fan of it. I I understand it, it has accomplished what it what it is set out to accomplish. Fans get get all about it this week. It is being on the outside looking in. It's a truly an, an intriguing game. Uh, it makes the last week of the of the regular season fun to watch. But as a player playing in it, I'm not a big fan of it. I don't like it coming down. You play all these games comes down to one game whether you're going to continue to advance or not but you know what i don't see another way around it uh if you're going to add a three-game series well then you're going to have to add two more wild card teams so we don't have a team sitting there for a week and a half or whatever it would be so i i think it's accomplishing the goal that it set out to accomplish i think people definitely pay more attention this last week of the season 
maybe than, than years before it. And without a doubt, the, the coverage and attention that these one, one game playoff gets is higher than any wild, other wild card round had gotten. Yeah, without a sure. doubt. I mean, the, 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 you only get three or four at bats as a hitter, right? So that must just be so nerve wracking that that's what your whole season comes down to is like three more chances. It, it's tough. And, and, and it, you manage the game totally different than you would manage with a series on the line. You know, you, you pull out all the stops uh, to win that game. Whereas if it's a three game series, you might not bring in your closer in the seventh inning to, to get right. the last nine outs, but you would in a game like this. For sure. All right. Well, we'll let you go. We really appreciate you joining us. Yeah. I, we're assuming you're going with the twins in the American league. Who are you going with in the national league? Yeah. Uh, I'm still, I, I still, I do think the Rockies will win this, this first game. I, I do think they'll get the Grinky. Um, it's just a matter of being able to how much they can get to them early and then obviously be able to hold the, the potent offense of the Diamondbacks down. I agree with you, and I'll follow up with I think that they beat the Dodgers in the next round too. <laughs> we'll like see that. about that. We'll, we'll have to make that prediction when it happens. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. <laughs> hey, Michael, thanks a lot for the time. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Take care. Well, Jim, that was great having Michael on. He's a great guy, and I, I'm hoping for him that the Twins can pull it out, but you're up there in New York. I'm sure everyone's expecting a Yankees win. They're one of the biggest favorites that I've ever seen in a playoff game. Do you think it's a done deal? The Yankees are going to win this game? Well, yeah, as we, as we all know, you know, those games, those one gamers can go either way. I think I think they are heavy favorites, and and you know, I think there's some good reason for it. I mean, they did win over 90 games, and that's a, that's a big advantage over you know, Minnesota. Minnesota is such a such a great story overall. Uh, but again, if you played, if you put these two teams together. Uh, and played a five-game series or even a seven-game. I think the better team, who's the the Yankees, I think they're deeper. Um, they would win it. But in one game, you just you just don't know. And Irving Santana has been very good, as we know. So is Luis Severino, by the way. Um, but you know, with Santana, that slider has been fantastic. I think one of the keys for me that I'm going to watch, Justin, is you know how is he handled the middle of that lineup in in using that slider to his advantage. We've seen a lot of soft contact off of it, but. Aaron Judge has had has had a hard time versus sliders. Only 159 batting average against uh, versus Sanchez, who actually has had some success against the slider, right. uh, 286 batting average against. And I think that to me is is one of those that I'm going to be looking for. What, what about yourself? I know you have some interesting numbers. Yeah, I'm really excited about that matchup with Sanchez. I think he'll get Judge pretty easily. I'm definitely not playing Judge on my fantasy teams tonight. Uh, Sanchez is one of the better plays from the Yankees. I think some of the speedsters could have an opportunity against Santana. I know uh, Ellsbury and Gardner have stolen bases against them in the past. I would imagine that they'll be looking to steal tonight. Um, and I think that I think people are overhyping the Yankees' chances to win this game because, like you said, they would win in a series. But the reason the Yankees would win in the series is because they would outlast the Twins' depth. I mean, their bullpen has Warren, Tommy Kay, Chad Green, David Robertson, Dylan Batances, Aroldis Chapman. They're probably not going to get an inning out of six dominant reliever, relief pitchers tonight. So that advantage, I think, is mitigated to some extent in the fact that it's just a one-game uh, closer. I mean, Matt Belisle has done a great job as the closer. I think Taylor Rogers comes in tonight. I think he'll do a pretty good job. He's only surrendered one run in like his last 14 or 15 innings. Um, and then they have Trevor Hildenberger, who faced a dozen Yankees hitters last time, and he only let two guys get on base. So I don't think the depth of the bullpen is going to matter that much in this game. I think it's going to be a lot closer than people think. 
Um, I do think the Yankees will win, but um, the the amount the, of the favoritism that you're seeing from Vegas with, uh, I think they're almost a three to one favorite. The Yankees are. You almost never see that even in a regular season game. So in a one game playoff game, I'm pretty surprised by that, and I would definitely not be taking the Yankees uh, if I was going to have to lay down those kind of odds. I think the Twins have a pretty good shot. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I think one unfortunate thing for the Twins will be without their power hitter, Miguel Sano, right. uh, you know, who's been dealing with those that, that shin, the, the shin issue. And, you know, he was playing for a couple games here late uh, in the season, but it just seems like that that's it's going to be one of those difficult things for him to be able to play. And I thought even even if on a, on a one-game plan he might be available where Paul Molitor could insert him to pinch hit in a key spot in the in the during the course of the game and he could you know even if it meant uh swinging the the bat if he got on base pinch running for him you know he has that that presence that you look for there's uh, you know the left-hander Jason Shreve it kind of neutralizes uh Shreve you know I'd love to see a matchup at the end of the game potentially Chapman the lefty versus Sano like all these things you would love to see it just Physically, he can't go, and and so they'll have to do without him. And and then listen, they played well without him for the most part. Yeah, a guy that I'm really looking to keep an eye on tonight is Byron Buxton. I think his impact on the game uh, could be seen on, on both sides of the ball. He has one of the highest defensive WAR ratings, and uh, one of the knocks I keep hearing on Irvin Santana is people saying, "Well, look how high his fielder independent ERA is compared to his regular ERA." But there's a very good reason for that, and it's because he's playing in front of Byron Buxton, who is chasing down every ball that gets put in the outfield. And then the next thing people say is, well, Irvin Santana has a very low batting average on balls in play. That's not sustainable. Well, he sustained it over the course of the season, and once again, I think Byron Buxton is going and getting all these balls that he's getting. The way that Santana pitches is just driving balls right to Byron Buxton, and he is getting all of them. He saved 11.8 runs on defense this year. I don't know exactly how that's calculated, but I know that's pretty darn good. And I think with his 16 home runs and 29 stolen bases, he has an unlimited amount of ways that he can impact the game tonight. So I'm excited to watch him. Yeah, yeah. well, and Buxton you know, has had such a good second half of the season, specifically the last two months. Really, that entire team, Joe Maurer as well, and uh, they just have a bunch of, of, uh, of players. Buxton is certainly the impactful player, as you mentioned, you know, and, and uh, you know, now for the Twins, if you know, if they want to see him do that over the course of the full season. But he's certainly peaked at the right time as he's played well here in the month of August and September. For sure. I'm looking for the game tonight. And let's move to the game tomorrow night. Uh, I know that you recently talked to Bud Black. Uh, what did he have to say about this format with the one game playoff? So he's been in this before, um, you know, and, and it's one of those where he goes, yeah. And he said this, he said, you know, I don't know if I, I take any, anything really out of that one game other than um, uh, I plan on being hypersensitive and using the pitching staff. Uh, he's certainly aware of, of John Gray's numbers. I know you brought him up, uh, you know, first time around the line versus second time around lineup. You brought them, you've talked about them and, and, uh, and, and we've spoken to Michael Kadire about it. Um, you know, he, while acknowledging them, also, you know, wants to go as deep as he can with Gray, but knowing that, you know, he's going to have a very short leash because of the fact that it's a one-gamer. And he's like, you know, we're going to use either 10 or 11 pitchers uh, just based off of that. We should, you know, be able to easily get through the game, the game 
that in that in that way, but he hadn't announced their in, entire roster yet. So interesting, you know, from that side of things that Bud, you know, plans on going kind of match up uh, match up baseball early on. Um, and the other, I guess the last thing is when a lot of the numbers, the fact that they have played each other 19 times uh, really does kind of mitigate some of the other potential advantages, at least in his opinion. And I, I tend to agree with him. We've seen it. It might it might help the the hitters uh, a little bit when they're trying to attack the pitchers on both sides. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely expecting at Daily Fantasy Insider, we're expecting to see a high scoring game in uh, between the Rockies and the Diamondbacks and a low scoring game between the Twins and the Yankees. Uh, and I think that Granke is going to have some trouble getting these hitters out. Most of the guys that are playing or projected to be in the lineup for the Rockies tomorrow night have very good career numbers at Chase Field. Some of them have OPSs over 1,200 in Chase Field. I mean, it's ridiculous. And they have really good numbers against Granke. They hit his specific pitches very well. Uh, I mean, I think that if you look at the Rockies against Granke, guys I think will be in the lineup. Carlos Gonzalez has an, a 1,140 career OPS against Granke. That's in 42 at-bats. Mark Reynolds has 792. LeMayhew, 756. Trevor Story, 1,235. Jonathan Lucroy, 1,485. I mean, mm-hmm. this is some of the best batter versus pitcher OP, OPS I've ever seen for a playoff game, especially against the team's ace like Zach Granke. I think the Rockies are going to win the game. I'm, I'm surprised that they're underdogs, but I guess they have to be because they're on the road. Um, but I really think that this Rockies team is going to beat the Diamondbacks, and then I think they're going to go beat the Dodgers in L.A. It's interesting. I, I had to make um, I had to make predictions for MLB.com. I picked the Rockies as well to beat the Diamondbacks, nice. especially in a one game. Yeah, and I'm going. You know, a lot of that is the numbers, the matchups against Granky. Granky hasn't been the same pitcher. He hasn't had the same velocity this year, and you're starting to see a little bit of a decline. Uh, I think the more you see him, the 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 um, you know the easier it is. Even though it's going to be tough, still it's the easier it is to hit him. Um, you know, and Gray just recently, you know, you know has power type stuff. You know, I've, we've seen Goldschmidt hit him, um, but overall, he's going to use that slider to his to his um, uh, to his advantage, and and really the the breaking ball too. He doesn't. He, uh, Gray throws a slider about twenty seven percent of the time. Buck sixty eight batting average against, averaging about eighty seven miles an hour. It's a really good weapon to him for him, even even with that fastball that's uh, been oh, yeah. averaging about ninety six. So I'm I'm looking forward to that matchup. It should be a good one. Yeah, I think they're going to have trouble with Gray. I think they could have trouble with Greg Holland. I think they'll have trouble with Pat Neshek, Jake McGee. I don't. I, whoever the Rockies bring in the game, uh, whether uh, whether it's Chris Rosen, German Marquez. I mean, those guys have such better numbers. Uh, the first few time, the first few hitters that they face which is a pretty unusual stat. Usually it's the other way around. Pitchers kind of have to settle in, especially long relievers. Um, but the way the Rockies uh, team is built, I think it's built perfectly for a one-game playoff. So I'm glad, that, I'm glad to hear that you picked them to win this game. I'm also picking them to win, and I'll have quite a few Rockies hitters in my lineup and maybe even John Gray. Interesting but, uh, on that because, you know, you brought up a, a guy that, you know, is a sleeper. We, we hear how good Holland has been over the course of the year. And you know, he's had some hiccups along the way. McGee was the power arm. You mentioned Chris Russell. Russell's a guy that I'm real curious to see how he's used. He's had a terrific season and, and been a sleeper for, for uh, Bud Black. He doesn't get as much attention because of those other guys. So keep an eye on how Bud uh, decides to employ him against the 
against the Diamondbacks. Yeah, I've been seeing quite a few articles saying these Rockies can pitch. I mean, this Rockies bullpen is for real. This Rockies starters are for real. I mean, people are just, they, they look at that lineup the Rockies have and they think, wow, they just hit their way to this playoff game. Uh, but I, I don't think that's true. I really think this is a good, complete team uh, that could make a deep run. And this could be a very fun year for Rockies fans. Yeah, you know, I like the matchup. You mentioned if they can win to go against the Dodgers. Dodgers and Arizona are the only two teams that beat them in, you know, in a series over the course of the season. So it won't be it won't be easy going into play against the Dodgers. But if you're looking at two potential teams that could beat them, they're both playing in yeah. that in that wild in that National League wild card for sure. Well, Jim, one final perspective I'm looking forward to getting before we finish up this show is NBC's own Bob Costas definition of a household name. He's been around sports forever, and he's really been following baseball closely this year, so I'm excited to hear what he has to say about these games. And I also think we would be remiss to have Bob Costas on and not talk a little Summer Olympics and a little bit of NFL. So we'll be talking about all those things with him right now. And now on the line, we have Bob Costas. And Bob is not doing as much as he used to with NBC these days, but you probably know him as the voice of the Summer Olympics, the voice of Sunday Night Football, and many other things. How are you, Bob? I'm doing well, thanks. And obviously we have Jim Duquette on the line, former Mets general manager. Bob, we wanted to ask you right away, we've been hearing a lot of broadcasters lately offering their opinions more than they used to, with Tony Romo saying what he thinks is going to happen on the next play, to John Gruden analyzing whether or not the Cardinals coaches should be taking a timeout and kicking a field goal before they go for the touchdown. When you were broadcasting football games and when you're on the air, are you thinking about your own opinions and are you holding them back or are you giving them when you have them? Well, the kind of opinions that you mentioned are exactly in the job description of an analyst. Tim McCarver uh, excelled very often during his days doing national broadcasts of baseball, not just analyzing what had happened, but making observations before the fact, which often turned out to be prescient. And Tony Romo is quickly gathering uh, a following because he seems to be able to predict plays before they happen. And if John Gruden says, look, they're going to have to recover an onside kick at some point, so they're going to need a field goal and a touchdown so that you kick the field goal here and then hope to recover the onside kick and go for the touchdown on the next possession, that's really not an opinion like they should fire the coach or I think they the overtime rule, all of which is, I think, also okay as long as you state it at the right time and in the right way. But analyzing the game and offering thoughts about the game, you're doing a baseball game and you say, look, in this situation, I'd pull Batances and bring in Chapman right now. I wouldn't wait for the ninth. That's what an analyst does. Right. Yeah, and and with the situation with the Cardinals, do you think the right decision is to kick the field goal? Because I've seen in the numbers that you should kick the field goal because you have a better chance to score a touchdown on the last play than you do to convert a field goal. It depends, uh, obviously, where you are. Right. Let's let's say it's fourth down even at the one yard line. Maybe you go for the touchdown. Uh, in the situation you're describing, if there's only and I wasn't watching that particular game, but if there's only a few ticks left on the clock and only time maybe to recover the onside kick and have one play, then the likelihood of even if it's slim of scoring on a hail mary into the end zone is greater than kicking a 60 yard field goal if you recover the onside kick. And at that distance, the field goal that you need to at least get close is a relative chip shot. So analytics would probably tell you that that's the way to go. Just like analytics tell you 
that going for it on fourth down more often than most coaches at both the college and pro level is actually over time, even if it doesn't work each time, over time going for it on fourth down is a much better move than Absolutely. most coaches realize. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, hey, Bob, I'm curious, when, you know, you're speaking of analytics, and this is something that, you know, as, as you do, like the baseball games, you and, and uh, you know, Smoltz or you and, and Jim Cott, when you're doing those games for mm-hmm. MLB Network, you know, how, how do you use the, the current sabermetric, you know, the sabermetric statistics into, the, into a broadcast? Do you like to add that stuff in there? I do. I do. And you have to be aware of it because every team has an analytics department and they're using it. Uh, in some cases, to influence in-game decisions. Certainly, they're using it in terms of their trade decisions, their free agent acquisitions, all that sort of thing. Um, it's interesting. I don't think it supplants what the naked eye tells you or what decades and decades of involvement in the game, like Jim Cott has or John Smoltz has. It doesn't supplant their instinctive judgments, but it certainly supplements it you have to be aware of it and you should be knowledgeable about it and sometimes it's just for the enjoyment of the audience you don't really have to know the launch angle to know that it was a home run you don't really have to know the exit velocity or the exact distance but you sure want to know if the ball that came off stanton's bat or aaron judge's bat was the hardest hit ball of the season or if it traveled 462 feet or 484 feet you want to know And the idea of launch angle, for example, is something that's affecting the approach of many, many hitters around baseball. And, and it, it, it impacts, it impacts how the game played. So yeah, I think you need to be aware of all those things. When you're watching the games, are you rooting for a team or do you have to stay completely neutral every time? Well, I'm doing national games. So, I think you root for storylines. If if somebody's going for a record or something that would be noteworthy, right. it would be nice for it to happen while you're on the air and you get to cover that. And I think sometimes fans misunderstand if you're doing a game at Fenway Park and a Red Sox hits a grand slam run, you're going to have to raise your voice louder because the crowd's going to react differently than if a Yankee hit it. Right. It doesn't mean you're rooting for the Red Sox or rooting for one team or another. But what you always root for, at least I think most national broadcasters do, is good outcomes. So if the score is five to nothing in a baseball game, you root for the team that's down to come back and at least make it interesting. That's what you want: right. interesting games. Hey Bob, I'm curious uh, when you look at the the uh, the, the one game plans here that are coming up. I know I I, I love them. I think mm-hmm. there's nothing else uh, better than that, than that. You know, just in terms of the excitement. I know, I know, uh, uh, buddies of mine that are G- uh, GMs now. Currently, they're like, you know, it, it it's it stinks because we had you know the full season and we could be out in one game. We got to the postseason and, and it's over. But I'm always like, hey, you know what? Win the division. I've always felt that way. Give more credence to winning the division. What what side? Uh, do you, which way do you like? Do you like it this way? Well, I think the second wild card was a great idea. Not only because it keeps more teams and their fans involved. But because, like you say, Jim, it creates a distinction, a more important distinction between finishing first and being the wild card, because everyone wants to avoid that one game knockout. And in terms of drama, the one game is the way to go. But in terms of fairness and further emphasizing the distinction between being a wild card and finishing first, I think you could make a good case for the wild card round being best two out of three with Mm -hmm. 
games, if necessary, on the home field of the wild card team that had the better record. Then you're creating logical additional plateaus. And so whatever team emerges from the wild card round, even if they screw straight, they've used at least two starters. In the modern game, they've taxed their bullpen to some extent, and they're going to have to travel to go to the home field of the team that had the best record. And like you say, even if one of the wild cards, if the first ranking wild card has the second best record in the entire league, which could happen in a particularly strong division, they had 162 games to win the division. That's what the season is about. So even if you fall short, even if you win 100 games, but you fall short of winning your own division by one game, you still have a steeper hill to climb. And that team that beat you over 162 should have a significant advantage. And when people say, well, they'll sit around and get rusty. No, if you only play two out of three and you played at one site, it's long for the team that has the best record to rest, but not long enough for them to get rusty. And if they had to go to the last weekend and use their pitchers to secure that number one spot, it's enough time to get their rotation in order while the wild card team's rotation is scrambled. Does it make it impossible for the wild card team to advance? No, but it makes it appropriately more difficult. Right, I agree with you. Yeah. Bob, you told us that you've been watching a lot of baseball, so I want to get your take on who you think is going all the way. And if you had to pick a team that maybe isn't going all the way, but they're the, they're underrated by the fans, uh, who would that be? Underrated by the fans, probably the Diamondbacks, because uh, the Dodgers ran away with it early, and even when they faltered, they had such a big lead, it wasn't uh, really in any danger of, of them falling back. Right. But the Diamondbacks have played exceptionally well down the stretch. But look, they faced that one game crapshoot too. The Rockies have played poorly since midseason or, or just have just been mediocre, but they held on to the spot. So could you lose one game? Of course you could, and it could be over with. But if the Diamondbacks were to win behind Greinke, we all know that Robbie Ray has completely dominated uh, the Dodgers during the season. Robbie Ray could beat, sounds like heresy, but Robbie Ray could beat Clayton Kershaw in game one. Yeah. Now you're the Dodgers. In a best of five, you're down one nothing. You've got to win three out of four from a team that's a pretty darn good team. Yeah. I think in the American League, the, you know, no disrespect to the Twins, they're a wonderful story. But if you're Cleveland, you're hoping that Urban Santana pitches a great game tomorrow night <laughs> yeah. and that you don't have to face the Yankees because the Yankees are more dangerous in a best of five oh, yeah. uh, than the Twins would be. Having said that, I, I'd say that Cleveland, if you had to pick one team that's the best team in baseball, it's the Cleveland Indians based not just on the overall season, but they come into the postseason so red hot. The depth of their starting pitching, the depth of their bullpen, and the quality of their lineup, and the quality of their manager. Look, the postseason, you you run a gauntlet. Anybody can lose. Any team good enough to make the postseason is good enough to win a short series against any other team. So the odds are actually less than 50-50 for any team, no matter how good they are. But if you have to pick one team, I think logic says that team is the Indians. No, I, I love I love Cleveland. I agree with you, Bob. I, I really do. I think they're the most uh, versatile, the deepest. You know, I'm curious, uh, since we had 300-win teams, and Cleveland was obviously one of them, uh, what's, your, what's your feeling with the Dodgers and the, and the Astros and, and how they – because you know, Astros really picked it up. After having a slow August, they made the trade for Verlander. It played really well in September. The mm-hmm. Dodgers kind of limping, limping into the postseason. What's your take on those two teams? I feel a little better about the Astros. It's just like you said, um, blazing start, lull, but then they pick it back up and they add Verlander and Verlander has been Cy Young quality since they added him. 
to the point where no disrespect to Dallas Keuchel, who has a Cy Young on his own mantle and is nominally their ace and they have loyalty to him, but objectively Verlander is their best pitcher right now. Oh, yeah. You come you come with Verlander, Keuchel, Lance McCullers, that's pretty darn good. <laughs> you know. So I think the Astros right now are a better are playing better than the Dodgers. The Dodgers straightened themselves out after losing 16 or 17, so you feel better about them than you did in late August, early September. Um, and when Clayton Kershaw takes the ball, you know, you got a good chance to win that game. But the Dodgers are the team, I think, that least resembles their peak form right. entering October, whereas the Astros and the Indians are closer to it. Yeah, Jim and I were talking about a couple months ago saying we, we expected the Dodgers to scuffle, not to the extent that they did, but... Uh, luckily, we have it on recording, and it's uploaded onto our podcast, so no one can doubt us there. But uh, yeah, we, <laughs> we were worried that they might scuffle, so we're not too high on them. But hey, Bob, we want to wrap it up with uh, a little bit of Olympics discussion, as you've been the voice of the Olympics sure. for many years. And I wanted to know if you think that swimming is a little overrepresented to the point where whichever country has the best swimmer wins. And I think a, a point that a lot of people don't think about is that you end up swimming backwards, you swim butterfly, you swim, four different types of swimming strokes. But if you were to propose running backwards or hopping on one leg or running sideways for track and field, people would think that was absurd. Do you think that swimming gets too many medals? Well, obviously, if you're comparing Olympians and you say, who's the greatest Olympian of all time, a gymnast or especially a swimmer has more events that he or she can compete in than even the greatest and most versatile track and field star. Right. So that's why comparing Carl Lewis or Usain Bolt or the guy who wins the decathlon to Michael Phelps is a little bit of apples and oranges. On the other hand, there are some odd events like the triple jump in track and field. And there's even race walking, which is not a big deal <laughs> in the United States, but yeah. is in parts of Eastern Europe. So, you know, all these various strokes in um, swimming go back to the very beginning of at least the modern uh, Olympic Games. And I think the focus, the television focus on swimming, a lot of that has to do with the emergence of stars. Michael Phelps is one of the biggest stars in modern Olympic history, and people want to see him, especially after he went eight for eight in Beijing. And another part of, let's be honest, another part about television is who's telegenic? Swimmers are in darn good shape, right. male and female. It televises well, the same way beach volleyball televises well. Right. So there's your answer. That's a good point. Hey, one more I wanted to ask you, Bob, really quickly is: uh, you think baseball uh, will, you know, Major League Baseball will uh, will uh, shut down the sport and and let their uh, Major League players play in the Olympics at all ever? I can't see it. Um, I could see because it would be an appropriate goodwill gesture to allow Japanese players. Uh, to play in the Olympics in Tokyo in 2020. Uh, they're reinstating baseball for that summer Olympics because Japan is uh, a baseball-mad country, and it would be a, a, an appropriate gesture to allow those players of, of Japanese ancestry to return and, and play for their team. But the Summer Olympics takes place smack in the middle yeah. of the baseball season, and teams just don't want to give up their best players and the Olympics say they always want the best available players. They're not going to want AAA players or recently retired players, unless it's Ichiro Suzuki who may uh -huh. play until he's 50 anyway. So he could still be active uh, in 2020. You know, the NHL 
uh, made a, uh, a cost-benefit analysis. It benefited them when the Olympic Games were in Salt Lake City or in Vancouver or even in Sochi because there's so many Russian players uh, in the National Hockey League. It benefited them in terms of the game's popularity and exposure to allow NHL players to play and to suspend their season for two or three weeks in February. It doesn't make sense for them when the games are in South Korea. Right. Well, hi, Bob. Thank you so much for the time. I always enjoy talking to you about sports. Great insights across pretty much every major sport there is, so we really appreciate it. Yeah, Bob, thank you for the time. Thanks, Jim. Thanks so much. Take care, guys. I want to close out this episode by letting you guys know the bets that I'm making on the AL and NL games. I alluded to it in the show, but I'm taking the under 7.5 runs on Twins-Yankees, and I'm taking the Rockies to upset the Diamondbacks in Arizona. Enjoy the games.